Greetings, Minecrafters, and welcome to episode 11, Being Good Enough in a Crisis. So, last week I had said that uh, that was a beautiful segue into our, our next one uh, about the stress response versus challenge response, because this is also a mindset, how we, how we view stress as a positive or negative thing. And now I'm going to bump that up till next week because... I want to respond to my listeners. I've been I've been getting people, you know, uh, kind of asking me about being enough in a crisis. Parents and you know, college students and be at work and all kinds of ways during this crisis where people have just been killing themselves to do their best and coming up empty, feeling de- depleted and exhausted and not feeling enough. And so I was having a a, a chat yesterday with one of my uh, colleagues in marketing, fabulous, fabulous, very intelligent woman. And you know what? I thought, I'm just going to like, you know, kind of listen to what's going on around me and do that this week because it seemed that it's kind of seems like that's what's in the air right now. So we're going to talk about what it means to feel enough during a crisis. So uh, please stay with me because we're going to try to cover, you know, as many, you know, sort of situations as, as we can our conversation yesterday was about parents in general, you know, um, just not feeling enough. And it was in the context of within the college situation and wanting and wanting their their, you know, seniors in high school to go off and have this traditional college experience and and that sort of changing. And we were also talking about parents of young kids at home and when, you know, the world closed down, let's call it what it is, right? The world closed down, schools closed down, and kids were sent home without their friends, without their routines, without um, being invited, being able to go to birthday parties. Uh, never mind, you know, this is baseball season. And I, you know, I coached one of our kids' teams for, for a long time and actually even ran the league for a while. And that's a, that's brutal, you know, especially in this country where baseball is so loved. And what, you know, how are parents doing overall? And the thing is, at least from what I'm hearing around me, again, it's in the air, is that even though these grown-ups know in their minds they're doing their best, they are not seemingly feeling that way or that what they're doing is enough, that they're coming up short no matter what they do. And you know what? That's a lousy way to feel. I, I You know, I've mentioned it before. We have, my husband and I have five wonderful young adults. And I mean, we'd all be lying if we didn't say there was a moment where we didn't feel like we came up short. And that's just, that's excruciating for a parent, you know, who's, who, who loves their kids. It's just excruciating. And we, when we have this moment of, of human, sometimes we're just, we just beat ourselves up. It just doesn't seem like, you know, we give ourselves any slack. And if there was a time to be gentle with ourselves and give ourselves some slack, it's now. So perhaps we'll kind of start off with the college scene and then we'll move, you know, to uh, parents of younger kids. You may have both, right? This is your first child going off to school. You may have young ones at home. Who, uh, in fact, I had one, I, one of my students just this last semester, her, her family has both. So she was a graduating senior and she has a sister who's a well graduating high school student. So their family, 
you know, lost out on both of those things. And right now I'm thinking of on the parents end and doing it enough. I'm thinking of another colleague whose oldest daughter is about to go off to school and she got teary telling me this, you know, she said, I've always wanted, we've always wanted for our daughter to have this, you know, traditional college experience. They've been looking for colleges, you know, since she was halfway or earlier in her junior year, you know, going through all the SATs and all that stuff, driving around the, the country, looking at maybe not the country, let's say New England, because I, I don't know that for sure, but New England driving around looking at uh, different schools and, you know, just being excited, bringing the siblings, making, you know, little weekend trips out of it. And then, you know, the bottom fell out of the world, like we said, and now that has changed. Um, and at the time we were having this talk, it was probably maybe the end of March. So things haven't had not even moved along as much as they have, you know, at this point, um, and, you know, towards the end of May and, you know, they don't, she and her husband don't know what this looks like. They don't know if they want their daughter to be, uh, at some, uh, at her school choice, which, uh, you know, isn't right in town here. And do they, do they want her, you know, more than a couple hours away? Do they even want her in a dorm in close proximity to, all these other students. And the answer is in theory, yes, they do. Cause they wanted the traditional college experience for her. And now things are changed, have changed, right? Because do, you know, what if there's another outbreak of this COVID nasty germ? Um, and she's, you know, there for three weeks and she gets sent home. Then what, you know, or should they just have her wait for a year? You know, not what they want. This kid's a high roller. She's taking APs and, you know, AP classes and, you know, excited to get to school. Um, though, uh, now a lot of students who, who are high, high rollers, like, like my colleague's daughter, a lot of them, you know, taking the AP classes, maybe some early college credits, you know, just so excited to go off and learn. Now, so, you know, some of them are like, you know, maybe I should wait a year and couple that with, in general, you know, even pre-pandemic or whatever, the this age range, you know, the 18 to 23 to 25 age range is when most mental health issues kind of surface and sometimes erupt, let's say. So they're already in that range. And, and now, you know, now we're faced with a pandemic. You know, so as far as, you know, parents feeling enough, my uh, colleague and I were talking about you know, parents wanting this experience for them, parents trying their very best to figure out what to do with their, uh, you know, aspiring first year, you know, what to do, what is the best thing to do? And any of you out there who, who are parents, even if your, your kids are young right now, you still know the feeling of obviously wanting to protect them, wanting the best for them. And that is not always an easy choice. Because a good parent, obviously, as a good parent, we need to do what they need, not necessarily what they want, right? And that doesn't change from the time they're born right up through, you know, young adulthood and maybe even into adulthood. We're still making, we go from kind of making choices for them when they're little to helping them make choices. And this is not always easy. So doing our best now can look very, very different because, you know, and anybody knows with the, with the teenagers and young adults, even though they're becoming independent, they are still looking for us to help make decisions, especially in a time like this when no one knows what's going to happen. And it's just plain 
freaking hard. And this is actually where the conversation kind of came up with, with my colleague because we were talking about, you know, sort of how anxious this generation already is. We know that, you know, that's just, there's all kinds of things written about that. All of you, I'm sure, well aware as are, you know, the 18 to, you know, t- early 20 somethings, the iGens or Gen Zs, depending on where you, you know, uh, look that up because they're called different things. Uh, they are the most anxious and depressed generation the United States has ever seen, uh, you know, before the COVID thing. So now, you know, throwing a pandemic into the mix and we've now got a really, really anxious generation of young adults. So again, this context was in that uh, we we're talking about a gap year because some students take, choose to take gap years anyway. And I'll tell you, our, our college has done something very cool and innovative. And it is not my point in this podcast to, you know, advertise or market that or anything, even though it's a fantastic program that, you know, I had, I had fun being a part of. I'm, for the sake of this, this is honestly and truthfully just having a discussion. So, and it's, and it's just a good idea. So the gap, the gap year at Champlain College where I, where I teach is about this. We, we kind of came up with something for students like my other colleague there whose, whose daughter, um, you know, had intended to go off and have this, you know, traditional college experience now, now nervous, you know, it's kind of, a, it's a virtual gap year. That's, it's kind of about slowing down and moving forward, I guess is the best way to say it. Slowing down because so many students and their parents are anxious due to this pandemic while also moving forward and continuing to be productive and to gain that or gain or to maintain that positive momentum that is needed to be successful both in the academic and professional worlds. So it's got uh, the well-being course. I teach Minecraft, which is uh, so much fun. And then it's got all this professional stuff. It's got internships and it's all very structured and it's virtual, not online. There is a difference. So the classes are taught over Zoom where you're actually looking at each other and interacting and all of that. And the working part of it, the internship part of it, um, is also virtual. And, and there are speakers, and it's just it's a fantastic thing. So that's kind of what we were talking about was, you know, some students are going to need something like this for a reason to get up in the morning if their parents and themselves choose to to take that year to kind of wait this thing out and the idea is we don't want to, you know, you don't want to take a year and have them just stop. I mean, that is just not a good plan. So this is where the whole conversation came up with about the um, being enough thing. You know, this, this, you know, having a reason to get up in the morning is important for all of us. Okay. Stopping isn't good for anyone. Never mind a young adult or seasoned adult or even child, Right who is already feeling anxious and depressed. It's, it's a much, much better idea, even if we're slowing down because of, you know, we need to right now. It's just so important to keep moving forward. And this, this wraps up into doing our best too, because when we are moving forward, there's some like, there's some little closure, little closures that happen with accomplishment and accomplishment is something that is very, very, very important in uh, positive psychology also. And of course, as part of, you know, I like to bring up Marty Seligman, one of my 
Faves and the father of positive psychology when he talks about PERMA, right? That's an acronym. So the positive emotion, essential. Engagement, absolutely essential. The R is for relationships. We know that healthy, positive relationships are the number one for living a lo- the long life, longest life, and also the most high quality life possible. And then the M is for meaning. We, you know, without a sense of purpose and meaning, it's a straight road to depression. So that rolls into our conversation also. And the A is for accomplishment. So I brought that up in relation to the gap year because, you know, it's kind of got accomplishment rolled right through that. It's just embedded um, in this slow down, move forward kind of plan. All right. So back to the feeling enough part, right? We've got parents of college students going off to college as first years. We've also got parents, there obviously can be some overlap here. Our kids are, are you know, a little less than two years apart for the most part. So we had, we had three kids in college at once. So you may have that situation too. Um, but basically what we've got is a, a, a lot of stress and a lot of pressure and parents trying so hard to do their best and not feeling enough. Now we roll this into uh, the job situation, right? So now I've been hearing from, you know, from people also where I teach, a lot of parents are having huge financial uh, problems right now, just big, big stress with with finances. And they may already have, you know, an aspiring, we have an aspiring junior right now. Actually, she's thankfully the last one of our five, the other four have graduated, um, ha- having lots of financial pressure with, you know, losing jobs, maybe temporarily, maybe people are saying that it's temporarily, but do we really believe that? I, I know a, b- a whole slew of people who have start dates, you know, that are a month from now or two months from now or two weeks from now. And do we ever really know, you know, until it comes down to it, if that's going to stick, are we really going back? That's stressful. You know, and my husband and I are uh, in our mid fifties, I'm 55 and we've got friends also that, you know, if you're in that age range, that plays in too, because what if I'm furloughed, they say I'm going back, that I don't go back and now I'm 55. What am I going to do? Right. And now we're still trying to do for our college kids. We're still trying to be, you know, the most stellar parent we can possibly be. And how are we, how are we doing that when underneath there's this slow burn or maybe medium burn or even inferno of, of, you know, fear about, um, you know, financially not, not being able to make ends meet. You know, so parents are pivoting and shifting all over the place. And then we've also got a situation where we joke about it here because we've got our three young adult daughters home due directly due to this pandemic thing. I think I mentioned that our youngest is, is home. Well, she would be at this point anyway, but home from, uh, home from school. And that's my aspiring junior. And our two young adult daughters were working in schools and the schools closed down. So they're, they're here too. So we joke about it being a lot of togetherness and we can make light of that and still, you know, trying to, um, you know, do what's right by all of them. They were young adults out in their lives being free and independent. And now they're, and now they're back and we love having them back. And it's been, you know, it, sometimes it's hard to make to balance that, make sure they still have their their freedom, and trying to make that work too. And our youngest one has the personality; you know, she's very outgoing, 
was ripped out of her life at then a sophomore a, a couple months ago. She had actually just pl- pledged a sorority. There was a big thing, and that didn't happen, obviously. Now she's back, and there are no jobs. We live in small-town Vermont, so that's a challenge anyway. And she's been able, thankfully, to work the past few years making decent money for a summer job at a local ski resort, and which is now shut down. And there's not much where, where we live. And I know from my students who live in more urban areas that there isn't much for them either. You know, they've got grocery store options, and um, but there are very, very few jobs and lots of young adults for very few jobs. Um, so parents, you know, are left like myself and my husband running around trying to figure something out for them or to help, you know, to help them figure something out. And, you know, there's a real challenge to keep them busy and feel like we're coming up short. And I don't mind sharing with you, you know, my own, my own pivot, because I'm, I'm uh, teaching a couple of online classes right now. And I know parents, this, this will relate you know, a lot of you can relate with this because we, you know, with our living space, uh, you know, we are again pivoting with having three of our, our awesome young adults home and I'm trying to teach online and there is nowhere for me to go in this house. It's a decent sized house, but there are currently five of us here. And with the, the floor set up, we also have Wi-Fi issues downstairs. So it's, it's taken me, you know, I can get about 10% done in the time I would have at all of it done. And so it's taking a lot more time to get to the same place. And that's no one's fault. It's just, you know, it's just how it is. There's somebody walking around in conversations and, and, you know, our youngest has music on all the time. And it's, that's one challenge. And I'm for sure that many of you listening can relate to the, the work situation at home. And my husband, who was used to working at least 65 hours a week at his job, and he loves where he works also he's here trying to time to work online and we make jokes about you know the corporate complex in the upstairs living room where he's at the dining room table I'm on the couch sometimes he has conference calls and the whole house has to be quiet and we're all trying to get this get this done and 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 trying to stay connected when you know when we feel so disconnected uh all at once in the same small space and then relating that to the the parenting piece We've got our youngest who's a mover and a groover like her mom, and it she just doesn't do well when she doesn't have structure. She just doesn't. And she, you know, was sleeping in very, very late. And obviously college kids do that. But usually after a few days, they kind of bounce back after their semester. And she wasn't bouncing. You know, she was just sleeping later and later. And it just was not good for, just not good mental health wise. And so now on top of teaching online, trying to, juggle with my husband, you know, who's, who literally sits 20 feet away from me in the same house, trying to hush up when he's on a call and all this, we've got to keep her busy. So thankfully she's handy and we have her, um, we would have had to pay for someone to do the deck anyway, cause our deck's a mess. So now I get her up like clockwork at, uh, 7:45. That's what we kind of agreed on. And she's been busy all day, every day. And now the pressure is going to be back once this project's over to come up with another one for because she absolutely has to stay locked in to, you know, a structured something in order for her to kind of, you know, have her own optimal well-being going on. And it's working. And again, as, as a parent, uh, you know, it's, we're trying to juggle all this again while we're also trying to do our own jobs. And it, I can feel like I, I can feel like I'm, 
you know, not enough sometimes and I need to do more for her. So we have the online stuff. If you have two partners or, or partners and kids trying to be online and do your work slash schoolwork. And then if you're the chef in the house, okay, which I also am, so I can relate to this, is keeping things interesting and being creative. And fortunately, I enjoy cooking, so that's not too terrible. And though, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's a lot on top of, again, the working online um, and keeping everybody busy in a small living space. Uh, and also keeping them from, you know, killing each other. So now, speaking of kids killing each other, if you're a parent who has young ones home, okay, and you're trying to work, do your job virtually now, and, you know, or, again, furloughed, and now with, you know, the schools closing, elementary and middle school, that's kind of almost two separate conversations because teenagers obviously add just a whole nother uh, complex element to it. And now in addition to all the other, other things, good parents do just all of it right now, you've got, you've, you're homeschooling, which is not, maybe not what you signed up for people homeschool, you know, who choose it and you know, they're all over it and into it and they look it all up and what to do. And well, that, that isn't the case for, I would say most people. Right. And this was just kind of dropped on parents almost overnight. And now, in addition to uh, being, you know, thrown into working online ourselves or, or not with that fear of not working at all and now having to get unemployment or, you know, whatever, um, and all the stress that comes along with the, 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 you know, financial scarcity, now we've got to, you know, teach, you know, kindergarten, first, second, fourth, fifth, sixth, eighth graders online. All day. And not only that, they don't have any structure. They don't have the lunchroom, you know, the cafeteria buzz, the playground, their friends, kickball out, you know, especially now that it's, it's nice out. They're missing all of that. And parents are left with the responsibility of somehow, some way, putting that back the best we can. And that certainly is no easy, it's just not an easy thing to accomplish to try to put this back for them. So if we think about all of this creative energy that needs to come from the parent or parents, if they're, if you're fortunate enough to have two parents in the household, either way, it's, it's a lot, a lot of creative energy that is expected to come from us to kind of like, keep using the word pivot because with this, it makes me think of being a shortstop, you know, as I love baseball so much you know, like in like shortstop, quick pivot move to that fast ball, you know, thrown at you and having to come up with all kinds of ideas to, to maintain the, the closest thing we can to what their school environment was like. Exhausting. We love them. Absolutely. And it's still hard. We weren't ready for this. No one was. And for any of you who have read the book, The Giving Tree, which I know a lot of people are fans of, I'm, I'm not, um, but that really isn't my point here. And my point is, if you have read it, we can often feel like the giving tree at the stump level. We've got a whole lot of parents out there right now feeling like they just don't have anything left or very little left to give because we're giving all we have every day and with very little opportunity to replenish 
to replenish uh, and rejuvenate and recharge our batteries. You know, and this is thankfully it's getting nicer out now, so that's gotten a little easier. You know, but mid March or early March, it started. You know, it's midwinter, let's say, and it's really hit the fan. I'd say maybe mid March, and we've been going, going, going like the ever ready bunny. And for many of us, instantly having no space to call our own, and even the most extroverted person and most outgoing person needs some space. Never mind the you know the introverts you know, not having space. We've had no space to call our own, no time to call our own. Very, you know, very, very difficult to recharge our batteries. And though it's often cliche, it's very true about the parents on an airplane, right? When the flight attendant does the whole thing with the oxygen mask and they explain very clearly to put the oxygen mask on you first. Otherwise you are no good to your toddler or to an older person and again, though, though cliche, this is spot on accurate. And in this crisis situation, it's been very, very, very difficult to put the oxygen mask on ourselves first. And this has had even the best parents walking around feeling depleted and more than just tired, probably past exhaustion into fatigued and then getting up doing it again the, de- the next day when it already feels like each day is running into the next because we don't have the structure we're used to having. And good parents are walking around kind of in zombie mode, feeling like they're falling short when they're giving everything they've got. And you know, this has me thinking of Donald Winnicott back in the 50s and came up with the theory of the good enough mother, which will now transfer to good enough parent. That was the 50s, of course, right? So, and basically in a very paraphrased nutshell, he came up with this idea that, you know, and, and, and with research, right, that children slash, slash teenagers slash young adults slash now adults, okay, really do very, very well and grow up as these, you know, happy, well-adjusted people when the parent, parent or parents were just plain good enough. It means... You did the best you could, including the moments of falling short or snapping out of complete exhaustion, okay? But if, the, let's say, the high majority of the time you were responsive and affectionate and meeting the needs of your child, that that child's going to be just fine. So the majority of the time doesn't mean all the time. Perfect is a bar we couldn't reach if we wanted to. So it's much better to, to lower that and lower it even more during a pandemic And really and truly to do the best we can, knowing, knowing that our kids will be okay. They know, they know on some level, even if they're little, they can just smell it, that we are there for them. Even when we snap or forget something, you know, the arts and crafts didn't come up and didn't come in the mail and we had to come up with something else. It wasn't as as exciting, whatever that again, even with the grumpiness that they will be fine. I remember when I learned about this theory way back in graduate school at Boston College and even, you know, at whatever I was, 24 years old at the time, not a parent yet, not even engaged yet, though I think close. I was right around that time. I I, I remember how that I I remember just thinking to myself, wow, this is going to stick with me. I'm keeping this. I loved the idea of kind of permission, permission from somebody who had done all this research, knowing that, you know, kids, teenagers, you know, turn out just fine when 
most of the time you were good enough. And, and it, it stuck with me from back then. Right. So this is a good thing. And if there was ever, if there were ever a time to be gentle with ourselves and cut ourselves some slack, knowing they'll be okay, it's now. Of course, you know, this is whole pandemic thing has been a challenge for anyone, even, you know, for let's say neurotypical parents. So add in parents who have mental health issues themselves, anxiety, depression, ADHD, which is actually more neurodevelopmental, but whatever wiring difference. And then we can say, and might have a child home who has, you know, obsessive compulsive thinking patterns or ADHD herself or whatever. And just think how much that further adds into the mix. I have a friend actually who, who does very well managing her wiring of bipolar. You know, I don't like the word disorder. I just delete that because it's a shame word and I don't like that. So her wiring, she's a dynamite person, very intelligent. She has kids at home and I can only imagine how much more difficult it's been, you know, to manage all the rest of what we just spoke about with a wiring difference such as bipolar and um, with my own ADHD, it's really, uh, it's, it's been taking extra, extra energy and extra planning, extra communicating, you know, to try to get things in line so that I can, you know, function the best I can during, you know, with all these big, big changes going on. It's, it's been different, definitely. And, you know, I can share with you that I've had, you know, plenty of parents come to my my various workshops, you know, on the obsessive compulsive uh, thinking, managing the monkey mind or the anxiety or depression, whatever. And some of them come there for themselves. Some of them have come there because just to be, you know, uh, be more, be more efficient working with students or whatever. And some of the parents have been very open about um, coming to these various workshops because they have a child or a teenager with obsessive compulsive thinking and tendencies, or they've got a child uh, who's constantly, often teenagers, not feeling enough for whatever reason. So add the mental health into the picture with the parent herself or himself or dad and dad or, or whomever. And now they, you know, they're at home with the schools being closed and they've got a child with ADHD um, or obsessive compulsive thinking um, or whatever, fill in the blank. And just think of the magnitude, you know, that that adds to this whole thing with needing to step up even more and pivot even more due to uh, the mental health challenges also. And this is a circumstance for absolutely positively sure parents and and also to convey it to, to your kids that. The doing the best we can thing is real. It's not just cliche and it's not just in books. We really, 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 really need to acknowledge when there is a wiring difference to give us further permission to cut ourselves some, some slack absolutely positively and to be kind and gentle with ourselves, realizing that this is what we can do right now. And though any of the various wiring differences, you know, can add you know, some, some extra challenge to this whole pandemic thing. Certainly when I think of the obsessive compulsive thinking patterns of 
parents, you know, kids, teenagers, that uh, how much how much tougher this is for anyone struggling with this because now in all these rituals that that people that struggle with obsessive compulsive thinking all these rituals that they're doing to and learning you know learning how to you know stop doing and you know reduce and stop doing so that something bad doesn't happen are now being reinforced in the external world you know if i don't if I touch this doorknob, if I don't wash my hands five times, if I don't, you know, it's all being reinforced because the, you know, the entire world now has been kind of forced into, um, you know, obsessively, compulsively wearing masks and gloves and hand washing and sanitizing. And obviously not to, I'll be very good, a disclaimer here, not that obviously the OCT, obsessive compulsive thinking has always has to do with you know, germ, germs being afraid of, you know, being unclean. That's obviously one way it can manifest. And at the same time, any of the other rituals that are going on, flipping on light switches or whatever it is that, that the person struggles with is, is probably much, much harder right now because the world at large is, has had to engage in all these rituals to stop something bad from happening. Very, very tough for somebody who struggles with obsessive compulsive thinking. You know, we've done a lot of uh, talking throughout these podcast episodes about, you know, uh, thoughts, thoughts coming first and feelings coming, coming second and how what we think greatly affects how we feel. And we've also talked a lot about mindfulness and somebody right now, you know, a parent during this pandemic might be wanting to say to me right through the computer system in the air and everything else, electrons, are you nuts? Be present in the moment. I don't want to be in my moment. I'm just trying to survive. Well, well, the thing is, there's a whole lot more to mindfulness than, you know, uh, you know, being a Buddhist monk sitting crisscross applesauce, as my kids would say, chanting. There's lots, lots more. And one part of mindfulness is also about self-compassion and showing ourselves the kind of love we would give someone else. And, you know, especially as a parent, and again, I've, I've had five, especially as a parent, it's so easy to, for, you know, easy to forget that we count at all because, you know, we're so used to putting our kids first, which is, you know, obviously what, what good parents do. And at the same point, it comes back to the oxygen mask thing because we do count. We absolutely count. And whether we like it or not, we also have needs and um, even if they're, they're, you know, few and far between, we all need to catch our breath. Even the best parent in the world needs, needs to catch his or her breath. And, you know, right now it comes to mind, I'm thinking of two different situations. One, when I was in Burlington at a Barnes and Noble and, um, the parents came in and they had a, an adorable little boy who was clearly nonverbal and, uh, quite possibly on the autism spectrum. And they were trying so hard to have, quote unquote, a regular day out, you know, sunny Saturday, people buzzing all around, you know, back when the bookstores were a little more present. And they were trying so hard to just to, just to be a family and have this nice day. And I just watched them go from, you know, following him around because he was just having a hard time, probably with all the buzz and people and activity 
and, you know, knocking things over. And then he was, you know, self-stimming in the middle of the floor and rocking. And they, even though I, I didn't appear that anyone cared around them, certainly we didn't. He was absolutely, absolutely a beautiful child. And that you could tell that they, by their faces, that they were just so full of stress and exhaustion and um, may have been a little embarrassed. And, uh, you know, being at home with a child who's got severe physical needs, maybe, and maybe, you know, nonverbal, having you know, a lot more extreme things. And now the school's closed and the parent who was working is home now. And that, you know, the only break they got was when their child was at school and or when they were at work. And now that's gone. And I think, you know, if like the physical part of managing all that and trying to manage all that, it really, you know, overnight, basically, we didn't have a lot of notice for, you know, a pandemic and schools shutting down is emotionally how that parent, that exhausted, past exhausted, fatigued, chronically fatigued parent is feeling because they love their child. Again, it could be, you know, severe physical limitations or whatever. And then, you know, you know, becoming maybe resentful about the situation and the cards they were dealt, then feeling guilty about feeling resent, resentful about the cards they were dealt because they love their child so much and and they, they're feeling they're feeling badly for feeling badly. Okay, we call those secondary emotions. In fact, this brings to mind you know a very spineless squirrel moment, as I like to say, uh, when I was hosting up at up at a local ski resort here almost like eight or nine years ago and at a restaurant and this family came in with these two adorable little boys these parents look so far past fatigued I don't even think I can come up with a word for it and the older boy was probably maybe 10 I'd say little freckles absolutely adorable and their other their other little guy was about seven or eight and he was in a custom-made wheelchair where he was kind of um Almost like almost like a like in a recline kind of position, he clearly was nonverbal. Didn't even have a voice board. Actually, he was very severe. I'm not sure what happened with him. And I went over to bring them menus, and the dad almost made a. I'm gonna say put a joke in quotes because none of this was funny. Obviously, I think he was trying to lighten up things or something. And he said, "Oh, it's okay. We only need three menus. He he doesn't need one. He's got he's got his he brought his dinner or something like that." And, and I didn't know what to do. I just kind of smiled at them. And um, I don't remember what I said at this point. It was almost a decade ago. But, you know, just me being friendly and bringing things up. And I, when I went back into the kitchen, I just had to stop for a second. And I just, I was just so full of trying my, in my head, I mean, just to empathize. My heart just broke down the middle because you watched the older brother, you know, in this, in this, um, his face just had said it all. You know, this is, this is my life. And these parents are trying everything it took. It took everything his parents had to take care of the younger brother. And obviously his situation wasn't going to change. And I can only imagine how many parents out there have a situation that's similar with, you know, severe physical needs. It also might be an aging parent. It doesn't necessarily have to be a child. But then emotionally, schools are closed down. Whatever support system was there now isn't. And now it's you overnight pivoting with, with such severe circumstances. And then again, the emotional piece of walking around, if it's not enough to do the best you can every day as a parent, to walk around feeling badly that no matter what you do, it isn't enough. And then, you know, dealing with these emotions of feeling guilty for not being able to 
reach this bar that just wouldn't even be possible. And you know what? We call this human, not bad people. We call this human. So I also, I teach a class on trauma in the summer, not every summer, but some summers. And there's a book I use by Rachel Goldsmith Turrell, and it's called Mindfulness Skills for Trauma and PTSD. And I tell you, there's some really good, really good stuff in here. Um, And right now we're talking about being good to ourselves. And for a parent who becomes conditioned, right, that's just a sexy word for learns or learning or whatever, we, we learn and get comfortable with just being robots, taking care of everybody, and certainly in a pandemic, with kids with special needs, young adults with special needs, aging parents, um, we get locked into this, you know, just going day by day, and then it gets easier and easier to forget that we even exist in our own bodies. So Rachel talks about self-compassion. She says, you can think of self-compassion as the practice of being kind, helpful, and encouraging, and an encouraging friend to yourself in any circumstance. Self-compassion is generous and unconditional. Self-compassion calls forth our most noble and caring qualities, courage, acceptance, patience, understanding, non-judgment, sympathy, soothing, and generosity. Self-compassion reflects an ability to acknowledge and remain present with whatever is happening inside us, even if the feelings are very painful. It adds the dimension of kindness to mindfulness skills as we practice relating to ourselves in a caring way, no matter what happens. So I'm really hoping that my listeners who are parents out there, any parents with anything going on in this pandemic, you know, no matter what, and and listen and just hear this, okay? As we practice relating to ourselves in a caring way, no matter what happens. So again, it's really, really important to listen and validate, you know, the feelings that you're having about, you know, all the frustrations being at home with kids. And earlier what we talked about with the adults going off to college, one you already have in college, and yeah, that's our story, one going back to being an, you know, an aspiring junior, no matter what it is, to listen to yourself and not shove these feelings down or away, because quite honestly, that just brings forth shame. And that's the worst kind of toxicity there is. The, the feeling of being defective. The guilt's bad enough, but they're bringing that shame back, you know, and, and feeling defective as a parent or person is absolutely not what we want. You know, when these feelings do surface, are you fortunate enough to have a partner, you know, best friend, sister, brother, whomever, somebody you can absolutely, you know, is a safe person, emotion, an emotionally safe person to share these feelings and get them out and validate them. Because as, as Rachel says, self-compassion also reflects truly listening to everything that is occurring within us, as well as the genuine wish that the suffering be reduced. Because, you know, if you remember from early episodes, one of the reasons I love mindfulness, besides that I don't have to sit still because I think sitting's overrated, we can, you know, be gardening, especially this time of year, doing, doing whatever. And what I love most, in addition to being able to take it with us, is the non-judgmental piece. And it's, it's, it's especially easy for mothers to judge ourselves. Our, we are our worst judges, actually. It's so easy to you know, measure ourselves up every single day against what we're not 
doing. And this actually has me, I'm having a squirrel moment here, as I wasn't thinking of this till this minute, because it was so long ago. But my very first book that I wrote back in 2003, when I was right in it with five kids at home, and uh, it's called Striving for the Purple Heart. And it's about mothers being in this constant pursuit of honor, mothers of all all shapes and sizes, you know, whether you gave birth naturally, whether you adopted, blah, 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 and how we are in this constant pursuit of honor um, and doing what's absolutely best for our kids. And this is certainly, you know, disclaimer, not discounting dads in any way. Dads are absolutely important. It's just I've only been a mother, so that's all I could really, you know, write about. And when we start to get in this, you know, this dark, nasty wormhole of, you know, you know, this heavy burden of guilt, which, you know, eventually can lead to shame and that feeling of defective, being defective and not enough when we're such good people doing the best we can. It's then that we have to seek higher ground. And one way to do this is to practice. Remember, what we practice, we get better at, right? To practice showing ourselves kindness and and self-compassion. You know, and even in the midst of this uncertainty and, and insanity in some ways, you know, this, this one day running into the next, like we've had through this whole, whole thing it, that Rachel talks about, you know, we just, we gotta, we gotta stop. We, even if, you know, being in the shower is the only time we get. And personally, again, I like to be mindful in the shower as much as possible. And then again, we're also, you know, in a, in uh, a place where we're doing the best we can right now, just to hold it together. And so Rachel talks about, our relationship with ourselves. And she says, your relationship with yourself matters. It might seem surprising that the way we treat ourselves could do much to change our feelings. She says, you already have a relationship with yourself. And then asks, what kind of relationship is it? Do you criticize yourself for faults or your feelings? Are you kind to yourself when things are hard? Do you treat yourself as well as you treat other important people in your life? That's an important one. Is your care for yourself contingent on how you are feeling or what happens? You know, it's just been so easy for us, many of us, during this whole crisis thing to be like hamsters in a wheel. As we said, you know, one day kind of running into the next without the structure and we just get in this automatic mode of just taking more on and surviving and surviving and as they say sticking fingers in the dike or putting out fires just just getting used to this being a human doing instead of a human being and the main theme here is to do the best we can you know amidst uh the misugas right uh you know craziness to step out of that the best we can right and to to you know, ex- you know, show ourselves some kindness to seek higher ground, and you know, to and if that's hard, if that's hard to 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 show kindness to yourself and compassion to yourself, and to you know, validate these feelings. It's very important to ask ourselves, you know, why is it hard for me to be kind and gentle and compassionate towards myself? As you know, if this is the case, this is very, very, very worth exploring, you know, and kind of doing like an archaeological dig to figure out why 
it's so hard, you know, to show kindness to ourselves and often so much easier to show kindness to other people. You know, it may sound a little silly to think that, you know, self-compassion takes takes courage and it can take more courage for some than others, you know, due to the backstory involved with that person. And, you know, Rachel uh, continues to say, self-compassion is brave because it involves staying with our pain rather than running from it. Instead of pushing difficulties away, we can acknowledge what we are feeling and keep ourselves company in the presence of those feelings. You know, and, you know, self-compassion is obviously the opposite of self-criticism, which has a very strong connection to depression and anxiety. Whereas self-compassion, again, it's a skill, you know, how much I love skills we can learn and can help a lot with managing stress, has to do with motivation, and can also, you know, is also an over, you know, an indicator, let's say, or an indicator of one's overall quality of well-being. So Rachel talks about uh, one way to sort of cultivate this metta, what they call in the Buddhist tradition metta, which is loving kindness, is to is to repeat, you know, sort of good wishes towards yourself and others. And she does talks about the breath. We know how important that is because it's an immediate reset, bringing the mind back into the body from next Tuesday or yesterday or two years ago or, you know, from your work date, which is scheduled for four weeks from now or whatever, brings the mind immediately back into the body. And she talks about finding, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of a comfortable, compassionate name for yourself. And you might have a nickname. You might want to come up with a new nickname or just my friend or my dear or, you know, anything that's, that's, that's a comfortable, you know, you know, name for yourself. And the Inhale, just my friend, and then exhale, my friend. This is about yourself, right? My friend in, my friend out. And then to come up with some just some very short uh, phrases, and some of the examples that Rachel uses are, you know, inhale, my friend, exhale, my friend. Inhale, may I be safe. Exhale. May I be safe. Inhale. May I be happy. Exhale. May I be happy. Inhale. May I be healthy. Exhale. May I be healthy. Inhale. May I live with ease. Exhale. May I live with ease. You know, as we talked about, there may be reasons that someone has a much easier time being kind to other people than they do to themselves. And the whole thing with mindfulness is we're not judging. Remember, we are not judging. If that's where you are right now in your life, that's okay. And remember that if we, you know, kind of get that awareness, this aha, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And she says, you know what? If it's easier for you to start this meta, because that's about self and others, well, then go ahead and start there. And, you know, wish somebody may so-and-so be safe, may so-and-so be healthy. And once we get into a more comfortable position of breathing in and breathing out and breathing in and breathing out, wishing a child, partner, somebody in another country, whatever, this loving kindness, then once we feel comfortable, we can bring that back into our own living room, meaning our own minds, right? And practice this loving kindness towards ourselves.
And hopefully remember, you know, for a few ep- or a few episodes ago, it's been a bunch of episodes ago at this point, John Kabat-Zinn, one of the greatest mindfulness gurus ever, you know, says, you know, if you, if you're looking at mindfulness as something to add to your to-do list, just don't do it. You're not ready. Because we don't have to say, you know, sit, stop, crisscross applesauce. We can be gardening. We can be running. We can be cooking and just breathing in and breathing out and being aware, not judging ourselves, showing compassion. This is huge. And remember, again, what what we rehearse or practice, we inevitably get good at. And this is so important to practice, you know, sort of seeing, acknowledging and hearing our own value. I can't say enough. We all have our own inherent value and we need to, you know, be able to get in a place where we can appreciate our own value. So this is our mantra for today. I am enough. Inhale. I am enough. For the parents, this is your mantra today, okay? I am a good enough parent. Breathe in. I am a good enough parent. Breathe out. I am a good enough parent. Breathe in. I am good enough. Breathe out. I am good enough. So I am very hopeful, whether you're a college student at home, doing the very best you can, whether you are an adult taking online classes with children at home, learning online and doing the best you can with that while juggling virtual jobs or losing your job, taking care of an aging parent, taking care of children or or adults with uh, any kind of physical limitations, mental health issues, whatever it is, fill in the blank for yourself. I hope that today on this day, you can take even one minute, preferably five or 10, but if you can take even one to step out of that, you know, dribble on crack mode, just step out of it to take a minute to show yourself kindness and compassion, to treat yourself as you would treat your best friend. I wish that for you today. This is Kimberly Quinn signing off from Northern Vermont. Have a mindful day.